Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. Hello, welcome to this episode of In the Landscape. I'm your host, Kate Sadler, and with me in studio is my co-host, Charles Sadler. Good to be here. Hi, Charles. Welcome to our home, (laughs) to our home studio, which happens to be situated inside a a nice one-story suburban home here in Texas, just west of Houston. And we are following on with the theme that we started with last week's episode, which was all about rural spaces and Mm -hmm. concepts that one might consider in terms of rural design. Of course, some of our listeners are already there and, and may even have wisdom to share about living in that environment. And some of our listeners may be considering making that move. The reason we covered it as a topic is that we have considered making that move. There's something, <laughs> something about the thought of having a farm that's very romantic. There's nothing romantic about, you know, mucking stalls and working really hard. Very rewarding, but it's, it's maybe not what we envision. Like having a business. People are like, oh, that'd be great. I'm my own boss. Or working for yourself or working from home. And so many of us like thought right. maybe working from home would be awesome, but I do sometimes miss leaving the house and going to an office and sitting at a desk. Well, we have an office. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we do. Like well, for our business, yes. That we use some. Yeah. Well, you actually probably go there more than I do. Yeah. No, we brought everything home just because we had like the stay at home order and we just wanted to be sort of compliant, even though it's our own office. And so that has kind of helped us work together because we do have the our son that we're you know he's two so he's not even <laughs> school's not even an issue yet but it felt good to kind of hunker down together but we are getting back into the office and kind of getting things back to I guess more normal um, slightly more normal operations and the employee uh, that we have in Texas she works out of the office yes and I think she enjoys it that's the thing right so it's, it's a good when we first started the business we had employees working in our home we had a sort of a separate Office. Yeah, it was like a front street side. This was in our townhouse. So picture a long, right. a longer kind of building. And so there was this front room that was on the street that had a big window that, that employees could work out. It was of. a fairly big room. It was like a yeah. like the size of a good size living room. I mean, that's apropos of, of the suburbs, I think, that people are working from home, that we may never go back to the way things were completely. And so having an office in your home, if you have employees. It's, that's definitely part of the conversation. <laughs> well, and since design is all about, I mean, for us, I guess the way we sort of approach it, it's all about the program. Thinking through these different spaces and how they're used is really kind of an important way to figure out if, if the design of the space is working or not. And that can be anything from a room in a house to the house, to the landscape, to the community that it's within. For example, we think of rural spaces as being where we get our primary grown food, but there are things we can do in a suburban or an urban space to be growing food and Mm -hmm. be a part of that community of sort of (laughs) food production in a really wonderful way. And that there are all these innovations where different, I guess maybe the best parts of the different types of living arrangements are kind of moving around with each other as we think of this 
it was already a movement in food production, but now that we're all home, <laughs> living for, you know, living and working from home, this local culture, like really investing in where you are and mm-hmm. making the most of that. And design is a big part of that. Right. You know, your mother mentioned when we had a family get together yesterday about how food, some of these big agricultural like megaplexes in the Midwest of the U.S. where it's like a monoculture. They're growing like soybeans or corn. And Which we not- think of as cash crops, right? Oh, you, right. You sell them. You just eat corn all day. <laughs> right. And so that, that those, some of those regions, the farmers were rethinking, I mean, maybe corporations yeah. are rethinking. There's not actually farmers food for do. local yeah. people. Yeah. And so yeah. with importing and exporting, there's all kinds of issues. And so actually making food where you live, because food often doesn't come if we went to rural Texas, I don't know how much of our food comes from our surrounding city. I'm not sure. Well, you know, we've tried we've tried growing veggies in our backyard. It was a bit basil took off. Oh, <laughs> we, I love we, the heat. We can make a lot of pesto, but it's humbling to realize how much you one can grow on one's own. And also to to observe what you would eat if you really were eating like hundred percent locally, what would that mm-hmm. what would that look like? And of course, it's it's a wonder of our modern food system that we can get, you know, variety of food that we can import, like fine wines from France or, you know, uh, ham from Spain. Or caviar. <laughs> or, <laughs> right, right. And, fr- and fruits, like delicious fruits from different parts of the world. And, um, you know, as we look at the sort of like the carbon footprint of all of that activity, it's inspiring to think, well, let's go local, but you then may be making compromises in your diet. Mm-hmm. Or at a minimum, it's, you know, going to your farmer's market and checking out what's what's seasonal, what's local. And that's not new. That's a trend that's been sort of on the horizon. It's just maybe punctuated by, by our being here, mm-hmm. right? Let's see. So this week, we we maybe we'll get into it in our um, urban episode. We got to visit a really spectacular park with our son mm-hmm. this weekend. It was pretty hot, so it, there were people there enjoying it, families and and dog <laughs> dog parents. But Emancipation Park in the Third Ward in Houston, and that was I guess recently redesigned. Right. Yeah, you could definitely tell it's modern. It was neat to see the. There were trees that had been preserved, like quite large, beautiful trees. Yeah, and, and a it, lot of different programming, uh, performing arts space. I mean, of course, it, it almost breaks your heart because it's not at its full sort of programming capacity at the moment. Uh, it's sort of like there with this promise of more activity. But a theater, even an outdoor little stage that looked like they could, you know, with benches, a pool. It was just very multi-programmatic which was really exciting and there were like plenty of unprogrammed areas are open and to see people there was like a a, a open pavilion an open air pavilion mm-hmm. and there were rocking chairs yeah it was very it's, nice people there were people look like they were they had done a yoga class outside it looked yeah. like that they were leaving and there's an open the sort of the center of the park was lawn it was mm-hmm. open so there could be all kinds of sports or large gatherings and, and, and a lot of history. I mean, um, the history of the park and the people who founded it, those were present throughout the park. So that was nice and mm-hmm. meaningful. So we were glad to see that. So we, we can get into urban parks more in our urban episode, but this is our suburban episode. And we happen to live in a, in a suburban neighborhood that has a really lovely park, actually. Like I, I found a lot of the parks here in the neighborhoods in Texas are 
I mean, they have pools, they have splash pads, they are, uh, they're de- designed to invite people out. What's interesting is I don't see them used as much as maybe the urban parks that I recall from New York City, where, mm-hmm. I mean, you don't have a backyard, so there's, I, you're in the park or you're not outside. Right. <laughs> and not that this is, uh, the episode's not meant to be like a, it may be contrasting the differences a little bit, but we're certainly not saying one is better than the other because as we've also noted, like the gravitation toward a certain type of living arrangement changes as lifestyle changes. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly having a sun and a backyard and the little uh, blow up that we have has been really good, uh, especially during this time. And so it suited our personal program, which has been really good. Right. And thinking the different the rural, the suburban, the urban, they all have different sort of social and spatial relationships. There's what's called a mass space map. So that would be a map. The buildings would be the mass and then the space around it. Mm-hmm. And so on some of the, the Google Maps, Google Earth, other and plenty others, you can see that in a, so a city, there's a lot of mass, a lot of buildings. And as you get more rural, there's more space. So the relationship of People have different levels of comfort, what feels comfortable. Mm, mm-hmm. There's all kinds of guidelines, but, but they're often broken. So there's mm. a guideline like a 40-story building, if the road is too narrow, feels uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So you have a wider road. But there's plenty of beautiful places in the world that you would think would not be pleasing. Like some of these historic squares in Europe. Mm-hmm. There's no trees. It's all paving, stone buildings. You would think that would look so austere or or uh, unappealing, but it's gorgeous. So, mm-hmm. it, so I think people gravitate toward what feels comfortable, maybe what's familiar. And then sometimes the program is driven by a family needing more space. So people may end up in a different landscape than they're used to. Or Well, and it's interesting because we were in uh, near Austin recent, recently. That's when we stayed at an Airbnb that was out in the country. And the landscape was hot and dry and the dryness could almost seem unnatural to someone who'd grown up in a a more temperate climate or more tropical climate. It's like, (laughs) but for, for me, having grown up in the Mediterranean climate of California, the dryness was familiar. And so it's interesting how much it's not even that necessarily one region is better or somehow more beautiful than the other. But there's a lot of, I don't know, conditioning that happens, I think, when we're young, that Mm -hmm. we really respond, a lot of us, I think, although, believe me, I've traveled and lived in many other places, but there's something almost visceral that responds. And we were, I think, first-generation Californians. Like, my parents moved out there from other states. So it wasn't like this, like, (laughs) really long ancestral memory of the California hills or anything. So it's interesting how what you're used to from childhood then can sometimes feel comfortable. And and I grew up in a suburb. So it did feel like to some extent having the fenced yard and, you know, the the driveway and everything feels comfortable. Yeah, I grew up in Rochester, New York, because they're in a mid-sized city like Cleveland or not a major city, but not a small town, mm. like around a quarter of a million, half a million people. So sidewalks, some of my early memories, it was a city neighborhood near, not an inner city, but adjacent. And then we moved a couple of miles, which was considered the suburbs. Mm-hmm. So the first house, it was part of the neighborhoods. It was a grid system. The lots were all rectilinear 
or always sidewalks. The scale of the houses varied, and there'd be apartment complexes that would be interspersed. There'd be schools interspersed, parks, synagogues, churches. And then when we moved to the suburbs, which was very close, no sidewalks. So there'd be a a road, then a a bike path. So the infrastructure and the field changes. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't, wasn't quite as diverse. The spatial relationships, it was the houses were pretty similar size. There were some neighborhoods where the houses would be bigger or smaller, Mm -hmm. but there weren't churches mixed in or synagogues or in some of these urban neighborhoods that are where there's single family homes, there'd be a a corner store or a market or in the suburbs that that we moved to, we didn't, you wouldn't have, it was concentrated. There'd be Mm -hmm. an area where there'd be a lot of commerce and then there'd be an area where you lived. Well, and it's helpful. I think there are things you can change about the home once you move in. And this concept of, of understanding that design, design features in communities, some, some communities, especially suburbs, are the entire community is designed. Oh, right. And so it's understanding what your personal program is and having that guide you. You know, I mean, if you have that luxury, of course, we moved to be close to family. So that determined a little bit of what program we were going to inherit based on where they lived. We live in a neighborhood with sidewalks. My mom and my sister live in almost a fancier neighborhood and no sidewalks. I guess they don't want people walking around necessarily, but I wouldn't want to live without sidewalks. Like I'm a, mm-hmm. such a big walker. I don't, I mean, I, I like going to a gym now and again, but I love being just out on the street. So it's kind of knowing what does and doesn't work for your personal program. If, if you have that opportunity to help then guide your choices so that you feel like good design just feels so right. And so kind of being aware of it as a principle before you move into a space, I think is helpful. Right. It's very, it could be subtle. You think, oh boy, beautiful houses. And you think, well, there's like a, like we like getting bagels. And uh-huh. so there's maybe a bagel shop that's three quarters of a mile away. There's no sidewalk. You have to cross like a busy road. Probably not going to walk there. Right. Where, and you said there's a limit to how far apart can be before people will use it. I think it's, if I remember, it's in the literature over and over. I think it's like a 10 minute walk. I think that's the gold standard. So if you're walking, so 20 minutes, like the average person would walk a mile in like 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. So it's probably like half a mile or less, which would be about 10 blocks. If you're an average city block in the U.S., I think you do. I think that's the ratio. Well, and I think our local park is almost that close, but it's, I mean, in the heat of the day. So it has this great splash pad, probably open air enough that we could go more often to kind of hang out with, with our son and, and do the activities there. I'm a big on sanitizing, so it should be safe. But um, it's, a li- it's far in the heat. Like if it were like across the street, we might go, like I have literally thought of packing us in the car to go to the little splash pad because it just seems more reasonable than trying to like truck over there. Part of the thinking is there are not a lot of street trees. There are a lot of trees that are on people's lots Mm -hmm. um, that kind of shade the houses, but they don't shade the sidewalks. And so again, it's almost like I'm mapping out in my mind what would the route be like three o'clock in the afternoon after Daniel's nap? And then I'm, you know, trucking it in the hundred degree index weather. Yes, it would be to go, I guess, cool off, but then you have to make the walk back. So it's, you can really kind of like, 
I don't know, visualize, play, play scenarios out in your mind. It is interesting to see there's a community here that is built around a shopping center that has a, like an apartment complex with it. And I see a lot more if you see those those uh, construction drawings that they have outside spaces mm-hmm. that are, you know, big lots and they have the fences up and they'll sometimes show you what they're planning or you get to, I don't know, get a notice from the town that they're making some idea. And that sense of mixed use is really coming back. So just like urban farming is sort of coming back and we're, we're making use of rooftops and, and empty lots in new ways and even containers. You know, that that mixed use idea that is so appealing about cities is like, oh, yeah, I mean, it's nice to have your, apart, your house, but then you never see your neighbors or whatever. Maybe you could describe what mixed use is, too. Not everyone might know. Well, it's I mean, I guess for me, the way I conceptualize it is it's often near a transportation source that is not car based, although it can be because, again, out here in Texas, you you have room for parking garages and things. But there's often commerce and residential in the same space. And there could be business, too. There could be an office, like a professional office. Right, yeah. So you could be retail, business, commerce, all of that. Condominiums, apartments. And then parks nearby, nicely landscaped kind of communal areas. And it, it makes for, you know, I always think about retirement and having that kind of, like, it would be one thing to go to a place that's, you know, safe and secure and you have a nice residence and everything, but having that mixed use where you can just pop out and get some groceries and still maintain a kind of quality of life as mobility and stuff changes. Right. There's something really appealing about that. And I think I've read studies that suggest that it, it is good for quality of life and also communities to have like the different, not just mixed use, but mixed generational interaction and right things that's like, like that. very stimulating that there's a daycare yeah. and there's a senior center and there's uh, an office and a mixed like a like a we work space where yeah. people are on their laptops a coffee shop it's safer too actually so the mixed use the research shows like eyes on the street or just the concept of human eyes make a space safe mm. so if a mixed use people are working there shopping there and living there, which could be all different groups of people, there's like 24 hours a day, there's eyes on that space, mm-hmm. which makes it safe. Interesting. Where if it's like an office park, that's just office, and somebody works, like I work late sometimes, if you work, you know, till midnight, and you're leaving, it's not so safe to walk to your car. Well, I mean, that could be true, even in big, in like the, well, I don't know about safety. I, I mean, I honestly always felt safe in, in New York City. I wasn't that, I was pretty alert and aware and, and not out at the wee hours of the morning, but um, there's a lot of activity. Yeah. There's a lot City. of activity, except when you're in this, in like the downtown, downtown, like business areas that are just like it's, ghost towns. It's really like a single it's, it's program. A, it's weird. It's almost yeah. only like traditional office work. Yeah. It does. So then you feel a little like a little more or parts of midtown exposed. or you'd be out like a Saturday walking and there'd be people from a hotel and they'd say, where's a, like, where can we go to a diner to get breakfast? There'd be parts of midtown Manhattan. There's on the weekends, it shuts down. Mm-hmm. 
Well, one of the issues, so we're talking a lot about program and a big program for the suburbs. I mean, the reason I think they exist in this country to a certain extent is because of the automobile. (laughs) If you're watching like (laughs) history of the suburbs, they'll have like that jaunty 50s music and people driving their cars into their parking lot. The corn cob pipe. Yes, after they get their (laughs) McDonald's, tiny little McDonald's hamburger before they had super sized (laughs) meals. So... But some of the difficulty with even this planned community, we've seen this, I've seen this in suburbs just outside of New York, just about everywhere. The streets are not always big enough to accommodate on-street parking. The garages, maybe they call them two-car garages, but it's certainly not if you have two big, like, big, big vehicles, which we have a lot of here in Texas. I don't know what the percentage is, but it seems like about half the cars on the road are SUVs. In Texas, I would say it's even more because pickup trucks are a big part of the culture. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Which is, I mean, in some cases it's needed for rural ranches, dirt roads. And so when you walk in our community, it's hard. You're often... Kind of going out into the street to get around cars. Like if you have more than one vehicle, it's your space is not, it's going to be overflow parking, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and it just wasn't designed for that. It wasn't designed for the length of cur- uh, like driveway that you need. If you have but children living at home before you, before long. Oh yeah. Then you have each adult might have a, each, even a young adult might have a car to go to work or. So. What are some of the things that you've done in design to help people make the most of their parking and driving situation? I mean, it's an issue that comes up a lot. And this is, if, oh, I mean, right. again, one, one of the issues about suburbs is homeowners associations. So there may be restrictions on what you can and can't do with your space. But if you have the luxury of kind of renovating the space to the extent that you would like to, what are some of the requests we've gotten with regard to parking in particular? It's such oh, a big right. issue. I can think of multiple ones. So there's, with in some of the, the municipalities, if you're increasing the paving area, there's stormwater requirements. So they don't, if there's already flooding when there's storms in many communities and that causes erosion, damage. So they want to capture that water instead of it leaving your property. So if, mm. if you paved over your whole property, it's going to cause more flooding. You, yeah. can, you can imagine, everybody probably can imagine that. Yeah. So having a cistern or a dry well to capture, when you do construction, that often sort of triggers like, oh, we need to capture that water. Mm-hmm. So we've had, like I think of a client that where we did extensive planting for, and then part, we didn't move ahead in the short term, but to have sort of temporary parking. Mm-hmm. And the way, I think it went back to the fire code if you were allowed to park on the street, the street would have to be wider. Mm. So the builder mm-hmm. made the streets pretty narrow, and you were not allowed to park on the street. And, but there, were, there was visitor parking. You would actually get ticketed. So when the family had, when they entertained, there wasn't a place for people to park beyond their driveway. Mm-hmm. And so we explored doing, there's permeable paving. There's all types of paving that can coexist with grass yeah. or with gravel. So it... It, does, it looks pretty, uh, so we've had that request. So that would be good for parking where you're not going to use. You're probably not going to use it every day, mm-hmm. but it's there, like overflow parking, and it's better for the environment. It's pretty low maintenance. You're not going to have to repave it really because it's some kind of a paver set in gravel. It tends to last a long time. Mm. <laughs> um, then we've had other requests for auto courts or or turnaround areas. So sometimes 
it's been, I can think of multiple examples where the whole area was gravel or pea stone and it wasn't so pretty. So you, it was, it was probably in, in response to, we need more parking, mm-hmm. which could have been decades mm-hmm. ago. And then when the, when the homeowners that worked with us came in, it was this enormous, like hundred foot by hundred foot pea stone area. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to reduce the amount of parking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what does that entail? Removing pea stone. Is that, hard to accomplish because it's probably embedded so so there'd be it would depend on what type of plants were going to go in its place i was advocating plants i said Mm -hmm, you have this enormous mm -hmm. area that's adjacent to the house so it'd probably be excavating down to a certain depth and then like first doing a test what is down there sure is it all maybe there's two feet of gravel that's compacted Mm -hmm. so then maybe you're not going to plant something so having planters, I've, I've suggested that too, and have quite large planters that have trees or shrubs in them. Mm-hmm. So that can make a parking area look more welcoming. It can also provide shade. I mean, one of the drawbacks to parking in a lot of cases is the, the balance between shade and, you know, being able to put in, I mean, it's, we can't all build shade structures over our parking. I mean, it's, it's one of the big drawbacks of the suburbs, frankly, is large parking lots. And I mean, especially mm. down here where it's hot, but even out where in the winter, I mean, I don't know that there's a way you could construct like snow bearing covers, but the exposure of your car is just constant if you can't fit into your garage. Yeah, the parking experience, there's lots of good precedents of beautiful, some of these, like I can think of museums, corporate parks, hotels, resorts where the parking is gorgeous. Mm. So instead of just think, and you could do this on a home scale. So instead of saying we want the maximum amount of parking and sort of like the heck with everything else, but then you get something, it's practical, but it could be ugly. It could be very hot. It could, as you mentioned, the runoff. I know when we were, I think it was in Oregon, we saw lots of uh, rain, garden. rain gardens. Yes. Which, which is it's more or less like a dry stream. So it could be gravel often. And then plants that can handle water and drought. Mm-hmm. When you think holistically, I think it was on, on one of the Adirondack lakes. There was a hotel, like a historic, I didn't call the Sagamore Inn. It was a historic hotel. Mm-hmm. And when I was in graduate school, we had a visit with an alumni who was the landscape architect of record for this hotel. Mm-hmm. And so the parking lot was just gorgeous. It was, you think, how could you get excited about that? But it was, there were areas to park. So maybe it's like six cars Mm -hmm. and then there's a planting area and there was a tree and shrubs and there were trees and shrubs between the rows of parking. So there was, so your view was always, it was at least 50% plants and it was cooler. It was pretty. Mm. It was quite an upscale hotel. So your first experience uh, when you visit, which is very applicable to to a suburban home, you know, people's, when people visit or when you're parking your own car, your own experience begins really at that moment yeah. where you're parking. And so right. that can be, it can be a nice experience with vegetation. There can be lattice screens, there can be planters. There's mm-hmm. all kinds of elements that can be implemented and, and coexist with the parking. Right. Well, so, okay. <laughs> Clearly cars are a big deal in the suburbs and um, take up a lot of consideration. So thinking through our parking and, and maybe improving that is, time well spent um, because you do spend one, you know, 
especially if you're commuting to a job, maybe when those days return, or if you're, if you're trying to do that now, certainly you're right. It's getting in the car, getting, getting out of the car at the end of the day. And that can be like, you know, 10 visits to the driveway a week, potentially or more. So the other issue often is the front yard. So backyard, we have a lot of agency, the front yard is almost a, I don't want to say it's a squandered resource, but it feels a little bit like it. You know, we're big like porch people, like sit out. We don't have a porch right now. And we didn't at our um, townhouse actually, but that that feel of that front yard, like pre-television US history, where you'd oh, be right. on your porch to say hello to neighbors and, and take in the, the scene So what are some thoughts about what we can do with our front space? That's not just, so this is a little different from curb appeal because it may not be the most aesthetically impactful use of a space, um, but anything from like growing vegetables to how you use the space more effectively. Well, you could have ornamental and edible plants can be integrated. Mm. And so there's all kinds of ways to do that. It could be espalier all kinds of fruit trees or fruit trellises and so some towns might prohibit certain aesthetics but you could find that out so as opposed to the front yard just being sort of like a a blank slate with grass and a couple of trees it can definitely be an amenity where you can you can create habitat with with shrubs and trees have plants that attract birds and insects so that would ecologically be good it's more interesting mm-hmm. i've done designs where just citing some some comfortable lounge chairs some adirondack chairs that are maybe it's a color accent accents the house having that in the front yard having an intentional planting bed that relates to it there could be a, a paved area like mm-hmm. a circular paved area in the front so there's a way to i guess that's the magic of design it can it can take a program like we want to use our front yard and give it intention, mm-hmm. make it look beautiful. And I mean, you may live in like a, an historic community so that the the standards are really, really strict. But I think even with most homeowners associations, like it's not a free for all. But if it's intentional, are they really going to quibble? Like, oh, that's actually a lemon tree that you've espaliered on your house. Well, if it's well-maintained and just looks like a tree to the casual observer, are they going to care that you're actually using it to harvest fruit? You know, right. probably not. Although we've been yelled at for any number of little little infractions already <laughs> in our short time here. So it, uh, you don't want to run afoul of those entities. <laughs> that's for sure. But yeah, that, you know, that, as you said, so, so analyzing your program and then being intentional about how you implement it. And, and then knowing yourself, like, what do you, are you, a compliant person where no big deal or there's some neighborhoods where there's a lot of compliance, whether it's a homeowners or the municipality, there's been, you know, there's, when you visit beautiful place, you think, Oh, it's so historic, so beautiful. And then when you, people that live there say, well, you can only paint the houses like shades of white because it's Mm. a colonial village. The, Mm. The fences have to be wood. You can't have a metal fence or a vinyl fence. So the visitor experience might be great. The user experience, you might be like, geez, this is really. So doing a little bit of research and just knowing yourself, are you, do you want to have a, a multicolored fence? And is that your personality? Or if, if it's a compliant neighborhood, it wouldn't be a good fit. To, right. 
but there are variances and we've done designs where where the town there's a guideline you can't do this but let's say a side yard but because the way the street was it was considered a front yard Mm. and that's come up and so you can apply say we understand this is considered the front yard but here's here's the steps we're going to take it'll still be beautiful it won't Mm. take away from it won't detract from the appearance yeah All right. So it's about that time again, where we're getting toward the end of our episode. Was there anything you wanted to share with listeners that we haven't covered so far? Well, it's a a historic planned community neighborhood that I visited right near the airport in Chicago, where I landed, is uh, called Riverside. That's like 1870s, Olmsted designed. It's similar, like we were talking about Bronxville, which is a New York City suburb. It's similar to that, where there's a village center. Scarsdale is also similar. So that, that's mixed use. So there's to be residences. I think a lot of these, the buildings are brick or stone and there'd be a clock tower and a train station. And then houses of many different va- values. So there'd be many economic choices. I mean, so they wouldn't, none of these would be inexpensive, but there'd be rentals, condominiums, row houses, medium houses, very large houses. So uh, it was exciting seeing Riverside in person and seeing the winding streets and how what struck me, every green space was considered. So when you have, let's say, three roads that meet, instead of having that all that space where they meet be just paved and be this enormous intersection, there were lots of planted islands. So there'd be trees instead of paving. And it was the street trees were very diverse, so I was really impressed. There must have been like over 100 different species of street trees. And in many communities, it's really just a few. It's like Norway maple, London plane tree, a couple of oaks. So it was exciting to see something that was like about 150 years old. And it was still thriving. They were, still, they were replanting a diverse palette of street trees. Well, and you've helped on projects in, in one... Uh, one area we lived in where they needed to introduce new trees to kind of a a little, those little triangular parks that sort of exist out of the road systems that that go in. And there's no, you know, if you're in a community that could use some of that, like it's a great area of advocacy, I think, to make suggestions. And those trees got planted because trees had failed just because of old, old age. Mm-hmm. And the surrounding neighbors had contacted the municipality and said, hey, we want these, like, something replanted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so they called on us. That was, that was fun to see things implemented and to be really planting for the long term. Mm-hmm. Something like an American beech tree that is long, you know, God willing, it survives. A hundred years from now, it'll be amazing. Mm-hmm. That's nice. It's nice to have that forward thinking. All right. Anything else? So the design principle or principle of the week was... Uh, sociability. And so when we're designing, picking out hedges, trees, fencing, gates, that's often a term I bring up with clients. I say, we want, you want privacy in your backyard? No, th- this fence will have pickets on top. It'll be, let's say, solid to five feet or so. Then the top will be pickets or it'll be a lattice or another pattern. And so that's a sociable fence. So it's, and I think that's, applicable to the suburbs there's something that's non-sociable would be like a nine foot solid fence you know that's going to black out the neighbor's yard and uh so there's a way to have to define and have distinct spaces 
And plants can do that in a sociable way, having, let's say, a five-foot hedge on the front of the property. So it's saying outside that is very public. Inside it, instead of being also public, is semi-private. Mm-hmm. But, it's, but it's still sociable. You can see in, if you're standing up inside the hedge, you can see out. I think that, that goes a long way to being, being neighborly, but also having your own space. And mm-hmm. the, the spaces can be, when you don't consider like the front yard, then the front yard can feel very public. Mm-hmm. So having some definition, then the front yard can be semi-private, the backyard can be more private. That's pretty common. Without design, people might never use their front yard because it's like so public. And so having things that can be also appealing to your neighbors. So having flowering shrubs and trees that you enjoy, but it's also sort of a gift to the community. So of course we've been talking about a very, I would say American style of um, of suburb and and perhaps even our rural view. Well, I mean, it was American for sure. I don't know if it would have been distinctly American. And so if you have a perspective from outside the United States that you'd like to share with us, we'd love to hear from you. Um, I'm mindful of you know, residences, and this may be in a more urban setting, but where the, there is the inner courtyard. I mean, that is where people are sociable and there are mm-hmm. different standards of sociability and, um, and who participates in the public square and things like that. And mm-hmm. so if you have any insights that you'd like to share or, or thoughts on design, feel free to drop us a line and the information's about to come up. Beautiful. So we hope you have a chance to think through your landscape uh, in the near future. And we love hearing from you and enjoy the conversation. So tune in next week while we try to tackle urban, (laughs) urban design and just some ideas, you know, it really is supposed to be about what you might take into these spaces if you haven't thought about it to the extent that we have (laughs) for Mm -hmm. the sake of these episodes. And again, having a bit of a dialogue would be, is, is always the most fun. So we appreciate the feedback from our listeners. In the Landscape is brought to you by King Garden, a full-service landscape design, care, and education company. Enjoying what you hear on our podcast? We encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. We'd love to hear from you, so drop us a line at connect at kinggardeninc.com. We welcome show ideas, gardening and design questions, and always corrections. We travel all over North America giving garden talks and leading trainings. Check us out at kinggardeninc.com for our speaking details. And also take a look at our online course offerings for more in-depth explorations of topics covered on our show.